This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, it's Pia, and every Wednesday, we're bringing you a bonus podcast. One handpicked story from the week's round of the Sunday magazine that we think is definitely worth hearing or hearing again. Of course, you can hear all of our stories on the full podcast that we put out on Sunday and on the CBC Listen app. All right, here's this week's highlight. Dr. Jen Gunter is known for cutting through the BS and taking on those who peddle misinformation. She's done it through her books about the vagina and menopause, as well as on her blog, The Vagenda, as well as on social media. Well, now the Canadian OBGYN and pain medicine physician is zeroing in on something that's a routine part of life for about half the population. Even so, as she says, still carries stigma and shame. And that can lead to dire health consequences. Her new book is called Blood, The Science, Medicine and Mythology of Menstruation. Dr. Jen Gunter, hi. Hi, thanks for having me. If I was talking on the radio, maybe even as short as a decade ago, I'd probably give some kind of heads up to our audience saying, um, hey, we're, we're about to talk about menstruation. In other words, we are talking more openly about menstruation It's not as taboo as it once was. I want you to make the case for us. Why do we need to be talking about menstruation in 2024? Yeah, well, first of all, we're all here because of it. Human evolution depended on the menstrual cycle. It demanded it. So we've all benefited in that way. But for the people who menstruate, they are the half of the population that's more likely to experience poverty. They are people who might have period poverty and have difficulty attending school or work, and so they're affected by that. But they're also affected by the taboos and the shame. If you don't learn how your body works, then you don't know when your body's causing a problem. That makes it easier then for healthcare providers to dismiss you, or it makes it easier for you to fall victim to snake oil salespeople. So the ability to talk about menstruation is the first step in the the ability to educate about the menstrual cycle. And I think people deserve to know how their body works. There are a million euphemisms for menstruating. I don't even want, they, may, they mostly make me cringe. So I don't <laughs> like time of the month might be the only one that I'll say out loud. What do you think of the language we often use to talk about menstruating? So euphemisms, you can think about them in two ways. One, I think they're very bad for when we're discussing menstruation seriously as a society, as medical professionals. This idea that we have to say the monthly or monthlies or that time of the month or things like that where we're dancing around it. When you can't say the word, it implies that it's shameful, right? So that's part of that shame. And that's where those euphemisms come from. That happened to me when I was in you know, grade eight class and I needed to change my pad. And when I told my teacher I had my period, he just about like, you look like he's seen a ghost. Like I'd said something, like I'd cast a spell on him, you know? <laughs> so that's wrong because that implies it's, you know, it's dirty, it's shameful. However, on the flip side, I do love how women have come up with these fantastic, creative euphemisms that are in many ways way more graphic than saying I'm bleeding. And that's kind of like subversive. So I think it really depends on the context. If you're trying to be subversive, Go for it. If you're trying to educate, 
Stick with the correct terminology. Okay, two things. One, what's your favorite one? Uh, oh, well, there's communists in the funhouse. <laughs> <laughs> and two, why do you want people to be subversive when we're, we're discussing this? Well, I think that's basically, you know, giving the finger to the patriarchy. That's like, okay, we're going to take what you're imposing on us and we're going to twist it in such a way. It just shoots it right back at you and it's way worse. I mean, my other favorite one is, you know, the English are coming. Oh my God. Like red coats, right? <laughs> um, and Dr. Gunter, you make this argument though, like it's not just about the taboo, the shame, uh, it's about accuracy. But there's also, when we talk about this in these euphemistic sort of ways, that there's a direct link to the health consequences. Yeah, absolutely. So it's astounding to me that every time I talk about menstruation, one of the first questions I get is, well, how much blood is normal? And this is from people who've had their period for years. Think about the fact that most people don't know what's concerning. I didn't know when I first started, and I had catastrophically heavy periods. I suffered with anemia for several years, six, seven, eight years before I got treatment because I was just told that was normal. And when you start using words like the curse, well, then you're like, okay, well, I leaked all over my bed. I guess I see why they call it the curse, mm. right? As opposed to thinking, hey, my blood, my, I was bleeding with large clots and soaking the beds. That's a sign of abnormality. I mean, 40% of women who menstruate up to the age of about 22 are iron deficient. Like that's a real problem. So can you just help us out here medically? Because I think some people are hearing you, but saying, well, what is a quote unquote normal period? Yeah. So a normal period, medically normal period would last for seven days or less of bleeding. It will happen every 24 to 38 days. Understanding you can have a wild swing of up to seven days cycle to cycle. A lot of people think, oh, my period should be like clockwork. Nope. It's it's not a it's not an atomic clock. So you might have 25 days one cycle and 30 days the next cycle. Totally normal to have that variation. From a flow standpoint, if you're having clots that are larger than a quarter, if you feel like gushing when you stand up, if you're leaking through pads or tampons more than every one to two hours, or you're soaking onto your clothes or bed sheets, those are times that are those are objective signs that your bleeding might be heavy. But I also tell people, if you think your bleeding is heavy, I also take that as a sign it needs to be investigated. Go to the doctor if you have one in yeah, this country. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if you feel your periods are heavy, the minimum that you need is a blood test to see if you have anemia and iron deficiency, not just a test for your hemoglobin. You also need a test for iron. It's called ferritin. Okay. That's helpful for a lot of people out there. Um, in your book, you wrote that the original sin of menstruation myths is that menstrual blood contains toxins mm -hmm. and the cycle is a sort of detoxifying waste removal system. I got to say, I, I still sort of think of it that way. And so I, I just throw that out there. Like, I'm like, oh yeah, you're like, your body is doing what it does through its cycle. But unpack this myth and why you believe it is still so pervasive. Yeah. So the myth is from before we understood anything about bodies, you know, the time of Hippocrates, when you thought about the humors, right? Black bile, yellow bile, all those things, and everything was in balance. So they, they didn't know medicine as we do. And so menstruation was viewed as basically an overflow system because uh, women's bodies were inferior. And this is how they managed all their toxic humors, right? Men were in perfect balance, so they didn't <laughs> have to manage their toxic humors, right? So um, that has 
really persisted throughout the years. People have linked vampirism with menstruation. They've linked rabies. They've linked, you know, they've thought that women could wilt crops or wilt plants. I'm like, okay, don't you think they would have used that superpower? <laughs> that superpower, exactly. To, to like get control of governments, but okay. <laughs> um, and then, you know, even today, so the reason why it's not gone is one, we don't talk about it and how ridiculous it is. Two, it's not that far removed. In the 1970s, there were still publications writing that men, women who were menstruating could wilt flowers. I mean, mm -hmm. come on. But look on social media. There's a chiropractor with a huge following on Instagram who has posted that the menstrual cycle is a detox and gets rid of toxins. Humans don't have toxins, we, so you can't get rid of one, get rid of them. And the menstrual cycle doesn't rid your body of impurities. That's what your kidneys and your liver do. Okay. Also very good to know. I want to ask you about um, birth control pills. Mm -hmm. um, so lots of people have been on birth control pills mm -hmm. for birth control reasons, but also because it regulates your cycle. You know when your period is going to show right. up if, you, if you're on the pill. And when we talk about these kinds of hormonal contraceptions, there's this notion also from some quarters that the pill sort of interrupts or disrupts a so-called like innate sense of, of the body. How should we think about that relationship between birth control pills and our periods? Well, first of all, if anyone's talking about the innate sense of the body, then I would say, well, I mean, cancer is innate sometimes, you know, kidney disease, all these things are innate. So what do you, what does that even mean? So that's, that's someone taking purity culture and changing it in such a way to get attention. And a lot of wellness and alternative medicine depends on the language of purity culture. Hmm. Pure, clean, natural, return to the unspoiled state. That's a really offensive term. There's all this tie-in with virginity and keeping your body pure. So that that bothers me on that kind of you know visceral level. There are, you know, no studies that tell us that that there's any concern about the pill from that standpoint on the menstrual cycle. If the pill had a problem, then pregnancy would have a problem. None of them ever seem to be concerned about the fact that you don't menstruate during pregnancy either, right? Mm. The pill was designed in the same way that pregnancy works. It suppresses the signaling from your brain due to a hormone called progesterone. And with the pill, it's hormones called progestins. And it just shuts it down because that's how the body shuts down ovulation. Otherwise, you'd keep ovulating during pregnancy and you could get pregnant then again and again. And that would actually be bad for your right. pregnancy, right? <laughs> yeah. So I would tell people that when anyone's using purity language, be on the lookout for it and be very mindful of that person as a credible source. The birth control pill is fine to take. If you don't want to have a period, great. You don't have to have one. You can just take it continuously. It's not that there's any lining then that builds up. You can just take it and not have a period. If you like having your period, you can take it so you have a period. I'm all for freedom of choice when it comes to menstruation. Except for, and I'm, I'm thinking of this, it's somewhat recent, like trend on social media, TikTok, mm -hmm. uh, mostly, where women who have ditched the pill are sort of out there, you know, making videos, urging others to do the same in favor of tracking their cycle. So I asked this question with, with that sort of context. Is there any downside to being too hyper aware of one's menstrual cycle? Absolutely. So this is called the quantified self. And we've actually seen with sleep trackers, people developing anxiety and having worse sleep because of that. So there's this idea that you need to be in tune with your menstrual cycle. 
well, I don't know, nobody ever says you need to be in tune with your kidneys or your liver. So first of all, <laughs> assigning some kind of special function to the menstrual cycle really bothers me. It's just a physiologic process. It doesn't need to be deified or put on a pedestal. Like this is just part of your body. But the other issue is these trackers have real concerns associated with them. So most of them sell your data. Okay. If you happen to live in some parts of the United States, that could be used against you if somebody thinks you're having an abortion. It costs about $100 to buy a week's worth of metadata to see who went to a Planned Parenthood. Wow. Yeah. Now, it goes beyond just like, you know, you talk about a dress and there were shoes and then all of a sudden your Instagram feed shows you those shoes, right? Like that's really creepy. But then imagine, okay, so you live somewhere where abortion is legal. Imagine then if employers start buying your metadata to see when your last period was because they didn't want to hire someone who's pregnant. We don't know what malignant things people are going to do with your metadata, right? So there's that issue. But then there's also a study that tells us that people who track their periods actually become less in tune with their body. And the reason for that is the algorithms with these period trackers are proprietary. So we can't study them. We don't know how accurate they are. So they took a group of women who were menstruating and then when, and they were using an app. And when their period came at a different time from the app predicted, they blamed themselves. They said, oh, my period's early or my period's late. When researchers plotted out their menstrual cycle, it was the app that was incorrect. Um, you mentioned abortion. And I want to talk to you more about that because you write about this in uh, a chapter in your book. Um, I don't think people always connect like menstruation to abortion, like not high on the list of things when you're sort of connecting. What is the connection as far as you want us to know and able to better understand it? Well, I would say we used to, back when abortion was illegal, um, you know, call it menstrual management or bringing on a period. You know, that was a euphemism. And women with money could afford to go to the doctor and have a menstrual extraction, right? And as long as the nurse and the doctor were quiet about it, there weren't ultrasounds or pregnancy tests, right? So I wanted to kind of bring that sort of full circle and to sort of democratize access to information about your body. Unplanned pregnancies are a very, still very common in our society. And if people learn more about all aspects of their menstrual cycle, as well as options for abortion, then they have a better chance at, you know, getting the healthcare that they need. I also wanted people to, to read about the impact of maternal mortality when it comes to illegal abortion, you know, when they're learning about everything else. They, people need to learn the ramifications of not having access to safe abortion. And also, especially in the United States, and I, you know, really decided I had to expand on this because I live currently in the United States and uh, there are many states where getting an abortion is illegal. And I thought, you know, Word of mouth is also important. You know, people are getting back to what we talked about trackers. If you research abortion online, they can track that down as well as your metadata, right? They look at your internet searches. But if your friend tells you about something they read in a book, that's not trackable in that way, right? If you read it in a book in a library, that's not trackable. Mm. And so I just want everybody to have access to all the information because that's how you make an empowered healthcare decision. You're, you're a doctor, you cover many things, but if I say the name Jen Gunter, some people might say, oh, uh, the doctor, the period doctor, like, I don't know how they're going to describe it. It's something like the sassy doctor on social media, there's lots of things. I, and I do want to talk a little bit about you and how sort of you've come to where you are and who you are. You grew up in Winnipeg, um, and when you were in high school, uh, Dr. Henry Morgenthaler um, 
opened a clinic in your hometown. For people who don't know who Dr. Henry Morgenthaler was, um, abortion rights advocate um, at the forefront of making access to abortion in our country. What kind of impact did that opening of the clinic have for you? So you're like a teenager when yeah. this opens. So I was a teen and it was all on the news. You know, Henry Morgenthaler was opening a clinic in Winnipeg. And I don't think I'd paid that much attention to it before that had happened. Because, you know, you're a teen, you don't, you don't think about what's happening in Ontario or Quebec, right? You just sort of think about your own hometown. And curiously, even though my parents were very conservative, they were very pro-choice. And because they, they were like, nobody should tell you what to do with your body. And so my parents were you know, we're vigorously watching, you know, the news on the CBC about this. And I just kind of thought, well, yeah, you're right. And when they opened the clinic and there were all these protesters, I thought, well, I'm going to go down and support them. And so I, you know, I was in grade 11 and I got on my 10 speed bike and I, you know, <laughs> rode down to the clinic and, you know, stood with people. And, um, you know, I just felt like it was important to do. And I, I didn't know that it was, you know, so unusual for a 16 year old to do that. But, you know, the news coverage and hearing, you know, hearing Henry Morgenthaler's words, like, you know, why, you know, him talking about why this mattered, just I was like, yeah, you're, you're right. No one should tell you what you can do with your own body. It's your own body. And so, yeah, it just, it just had a really big impact on me. And it was really from seeing it in the news. I'm going to come back to my body, my choice uh, in just a bit. But before we get there, because this kind of is your trajectory. So then, as you said, like, you now practice in the United States. Um, you also spent some of your earliest professional years in, in Kansas, um, where you had firsthand experience dealing with restrictive abortion laws in that state at that time. And so how did that inform you? Like, here we are in 2024. As you say, lots of states have abortion is now illegal, given the striking down of Roe v. Wade. But what was that experience like for you as a young doctor, uh, as a woman, um, and how you sort of looked at what you now do, like how you sort of thought of it back then? Yeah. So, you know, I was incredibly well trained at the University of Western Ontario, and that included, you know, training and doing abortion at really all gestational ages, um, incredibly well-trained. And so when I moved to Kansas, I, I didn't know at the time, I, I kind of thought the Midwest in the States was the same as the Midwest in Canada. Well, you know, and Winnipeg's a pretty liberal place. So I was a, a little bit shocked um, and really surprised that, you know, I joined faculty at the University of Kansas. And, um, you know, I, there was only one other person on this whole big university faculty that did abortions. And he was like, you know, I don't want to call him an old guy, but, you know, he was kind of one of these people that was close to retirement and he remembered back in the day. And I just was struck by that. Like, I was like, what? And nobody talked about it. And and it was like, you didn't talk about doing abortions. You just kind of did them secretly. And I was like, what are you even talking about? Mm -hmm. Like, it just was so weird to me. I got a call from, you know, an, another physician about a very sick woman who absolutely needed an abortion. And I'm like, well, I can't do it. I'm sorry. Like the law says, no, uh, you need to call the hospital attorneys. The end result was uh, the hospital attorneys decided I should talk with the politician who crafted the law. And so they patched me through to this politician and I started to make my case, you know, hi, I'm Dr. Jen Gunter. And I maybe had said five words and he said, oh, well, whatever you think is best, doctor, just do it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, so whatever I think is best, then why do we have a law? And that's when I, you know, I, you don't really think a lot about politics in medicine until you're stuck thinking about politics in medicine. And that's when I realized none of these laws were about life or some perverse belief about life. They were all about getting votes. 
And it's about nothing brings out the vote in some parts of the country than um, than blaming women for being pregnant and vilifying women as, you know, being, you know, hussies or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever old timey language I think these people are thinking of. And yeah, it's, um, you know, degrading women gets votes. So for you, periods are political. Yeah, it's periods are political. And you can't, you have to know all the basic, you know, the basics to know where you are. You have to know your history to know where you are. And knowledge is power. And I don't think that that's more accurate for any other area of medicine than reproductive health. I want to come back to the my body, my choice, because I think it's an important sort of slogan um, that has been borrowed and or co-opted, however you want to look at it. Um, it in, in very modern times. So if we think about COVID right. and the pandemic, that was sort of said, like, you can't tell me what to put in my body. Do you see any sort of connection or morphing of that kind of language? Um, no, I think that's um, a perversion of my body, my choice. Um, it's a perversion of public health. So, you know, if we didn't have public health, then we would say it's okay for, you know, people with multi-drug resistant tuberculosis to go sit on a, you know, a tram and infect everybody because of incredible public health measures. Well, you know, measles is coming back again. I heard there were a couple of cases, I think, in Quebec. Um, somebody just died in Ireland. But because of public health measures where we say, look, no man is an island, you are have a potential to affect somebody else's health. That is a very different message than you get to govern what happens to your own body. So I think that's just a, a purposeful perversion. Um, and, you know, I think see what those people are trying to do as poorly as they're trying to do it. And you'll have none of it, Dr. Yes. Gunter. Yeah. I want to ask you about a development connected to women's uh, health. Well, two things. This historic study first out of Scotland last month that found no cases of cervical cancer detected in a cohort of young women who were fully vaccinated against HPV, human pamploma virus. And then Canada has set a goal to eliminate cervical cancer, which HPV can lead to, uh, by 2040, kids in their early teens can get an HPV vaccine in most provinces now at, through their school immunization programs. What was your reaction to that? Um, and what needs to happen for our country to reach that goal of 2040? So I would say that the HPV vaccine is a cancer moonshot. Everybody talks about cancer moonshots, and we have one. The fact that people aren't embracing it is incredible to me as someone who has seen people die from cervical cancer or had awful conditions related to it. I see people who still unfortunately get, you know, diagnosed late for whatever, you know, health inequities and all kinds of reasons. And I see them because they have catastrophic damage from radiation to their vagina, right? And so I'm the person who fixes that mm -hmm. and, uh, or tries to, it's very difficult to fix. Uh, and the fact that people would deny that to me is, is so difficult to understand. When I was a medical student, we just barely understood that maybe HPV had a role in cervical cancer. We didn't really get it at all. And now we can we can prevent it from happening. It should be a requirement to get the vaccine. We have a duty to our citizens and it is incredibly safe. And the idea, it has become so fraught because the anti-vaccine movement, which I would like to call the pro-death movement really, and the pro-cancer movement, has decided to weaponize fertility concerns. You know, if this wasn't a vaccine related to a sexually transmitted infection, I think it would be a whole different discussion. But this idea that it's going to encourage young people to have sex, well, nobody worries that, um, that teaching young kids how to wear a seatbelt is going to encourage them to drive dangerously. 
You can't have 80% of the population vaccinated. You can't have 90%. You have to say we're going to require it as, you know, for every single person going to school, that private schools are not exempt. Um, and it's it's going to be a difficult sell because in, you know, some places now, you know, they're allowing people to opt out from, you know, education about sex ed, which is probably even cursory at best. So if you can opt out of education, I can imagine there's going to be a lot of opting out of vaccinations. So BC, I think, I don't know if it was last month or the month before, but introduced um, at home. Yeah. um, Mail-in tests for cervical cancer screening. Lots of Canadians don't have doctors. Yeah. So they're not going to a doctor to go get this done. And BC said, look, we think we can get better uptick at at home. How big of a change? game changer do you think this might be? I think it's a huge game changer. You know, the technology for detecting HPV has improved dramatically. We know that people can do the test themselves and it's as good as a collection in the office. Think about, you don't have to take a day off work. You don't have to worry about childcare. You don't have to worry about the cost of gas. You don't have to worry about your doctor being sick and canceling the appointment that day and you've already driven halfway there. You're, you live in Churchill, Manitoba, or you live in downtown Toronto. If we had universal HPV testing, everybody would have health equity. I have to let you go, but I want to ask you, I'm just using my household as a microcosm every family and is different. But like, you know, I got these two little boys who are 10 and I got my 14-year-old daughter who she'll hate me for saying this, but menstruates. Uh, and there's me and there's my husband. And you've read this. It's a lengthy book, Dr. Gunter. What do you want that conversation to sound like in homes when we talk about this? Yeah. So I want people to be able to say the word menstruation without anybody getting a red face, you know? <laughs> so I want that for a start. I want people to be able to talk about periods the way they talk about elbows or a sore knee or whatever. I want everybody to know how their body works. And I think, you know, the men in your household, the boys in your household should learn as well because they've profited from it. I have two 20-year-old boys. They know all this stuff because they've been around me writing and everything. And one of my sons, he's 20 and he's very openly gay. And he is very proud of the fact that he knows more about the menstrual cycle than a lot of his friends who are girls and that they come to him and ask questions. And isn't that what being a friend is all about, being able to help everybody? So... I don't know. I just, I want everybody to be able to understand what's going on with menstruation. I want partners, parents, spouses, kids to be able to support their family member or their loved one. And I want everybody to know what's happening to their body so they can seek care when they need, they can advocate for themselves, and they can avoid snake oil. Thank you very much. It's a it's an important read. And I, you know, so a lot of people who menstruate think we know so much about it. Then you read your book and you're like, wait a minute, I didn't know that. So thank you for it. Appreciate it. <laughs> thank you for having me. Dr. Jen Gunter's new book is called Blood, the Science, Medicine, and Mythology of Menstruation. You can find all the stories we bring you each week on The Sunday Magazine over on our website, cbc.ca slash sunday. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear, and we'll talk to you again on Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.